and welcome to Your Direction, a podcast about the scientific study of purpose in life and taking an empirical lens, an empirical perspective on what it means to be purposeful and to have this direction in your life. I'm your host, Patrick Hill, and today we have the distinct pleasure of getting to avoid my co-host, Tony Burrow. So if you're coming for your Tony Burrow content, you should skip this episode. It is a delight that rather than talking with Tony today, I get to talk with someone who worked with Tony for far too long, but don't hold that against her. Today, we will get to talk with one of Tony's uh, former graduate students, Dr. Rachel Sumner, who after finishing her time in the lab at Cornell with Tony, has gone on to do so many unique and exciting things around purpose and related to purpose that I'm ecstatic to get to talk with Rachel today about some of her work. And we decided it best to avoid including Tony because he would just assume all of these ideas were his own and take credit (laughs) for like everything we say. Rachel is laughing because she knows it's true. But I'm excited to have Rachel join us today. And uh, would you like to start us off by telling us a little bit about your journey, your direction, so to speak, about how you got to where we are? Absolutely. Um, I'm delighted to be here talking with you. And I should say, Pat, I've also worked with you for a very long time. <laughs> and uh, It's not all bad. You, 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 no. you had some good people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, my name is Rachel Sumner. I use she, her pronouns. I currently work at Cornell University's Intergroup Dialogue Project, where I'm the associate director. That work involves some teaching, some program assessment, lots of various uh, curriculum development type things. You asked about my direction. (laughs) What is true about how I got here? (laughs) I've been a fan of manatees for my entire life. Um, But that feels like one of the few things that's been consistent. Um, (laughs) When I look back... I think I can kind of draw a straight line from how I got to to where I started to where I am now, but it didn't feel like a straight line while it was happening. Mm -hmm. I think it felt like I made a lot of sort of discrete decisions that ended up moving in a a similar trajectory, but I didn't know that that was going to happen. So I think things that have been guiding forces throughout my life I think in academic contexts and professional contexts, I've wanted to work with people who were supportive and who made me feel heard and understood, which of course I found with you and Tony in graduate school. I have been driven by curiosity. So I've always been curious about the world and about other people. Again, like wanting to understand other people and, and how the world is shaping their experiences, my experiences, what we have in common, where we're different. And I think I've also been consistently troubled by inequities that I was aware of. So, uh, you know, I've become more aware of different inequities over time. But, you know, when I think back on my time as a college student, I was really aware of just inequities related to socioeconomic status. I think this is probably because I grew up in a low-income home and then, you know, went to a, a pretty predominantly white, small liberal arts college where there were a lot of wealthy students. And, I spent a lot of my time volunteering with America Reads, right? Trying to help young people develop literacy skills that could maybe serve them well. And after I graduated from college, I worked on a study that was aimed at reducing the racial achievement gap in middle school. And that helped me learn more about inequities related to race, which until then I'd been pretty unaware of. I'm a a white person who grew up in a predominantly white part of the United States, hadn't really recognized the role that race had played in my life. And then, you know, just some random events in 2016 helped me be more aware of inequities related to gender and how those had also shaped my life as a someone who identifies as a woman in the United States. So I think that, you know, wanting to be supported, feeling curious and feeling troubled by inequities are probably themes that have been consistent throughout my life, even if they've kind of led me to different contexts, different ways of spending my time. Really excellent uh, opening both for all the things that I wanted to talk with you about and all the things that we kind of connect on over the years Mm. that we've discussed previously on this podcast, the points around what is privilege and how does privilege play into purpose development. Mm. And I know that you've done some of this work as well. Like you've written with me and Tony about 
the differing roles of marginalization versus privilege on purpose development. And I guess before we get into some of that discussion, uh, like, is there a way that you tend to define purpose? Are there things that you tend to think about when somebody says, I have a purpose in life that have been influenced by all these different perspectives that you've gained over the years? Mm. The way that I try to describe purpose for other people is um, that it's basically identity, meaning, and direction. Hmm. So I think people who have a sense of purpose have clarity about who they are. That's the identity part. Mm -hmm. Clarity about where they find meaning in their own lives and some sort of clarity about where they're headed. Okay. I think that's for people who have identified a sense of purpose in life. I don't put myself in that category. <laughs> um, and so I'm grateful that your opening question was about my direction and not my, my purpose. I have always been very intrigued by the exploration aspect of purpose development. So what does it mean to be asking oneself questions about identity, meaning, and direction, but not yet have the answers? Because I think that's a very, a really important and interesting process for people to be engaged in. I think, uh, you know, I work with college students right now that's a really ripe time of life for exploring these things, even right. if you don't have the answers, right? Asking those questions can be very productive. I think people like educators or mentors or family members or friends can be really valuable assets in engaging with those questions. Again, even if you don't reach an answer right away, I see a lot of value in, in that exploration process. And so when it comes to the things that have always kind of grabbed me about purpose in life, it's largely been this process of exploration, not necessarily okay. what it means to have committed to a sense of purpose. Yeah, that's a great point and something that, you know, two things that bring us back to some of the topics Tony and I have discussed before, one of which is you can see why we like talking with Rachel and working with Rachel over the years <laughs> that just like Tony and I have frequently said, we are like... We don't know what our purpose is at most of the time. <laughs> I'm very excited. This will be the most purposeful part of my day is getting to talk with Rachel and then probably go home and take a nap afterwards. So this is very exciting for me. But I, I agree that I don't exactly know what I've committed to right mm. now. And the exploration piece is such a cool aspect of this uh, from this developmental lens that we, we've spoken about a few times on this podcast regarding how exploration seems to be an earnest at certain developmental periods, uh, one of which may be later in the lifespan after you've found something new or trying to find something new after retirement, uh, yeah. trying to find a new direction there. But as you noted, a lot of your work, both in research and in your applied work, has been focused a lot on university students. Hmm. And it's always an interesting group there because, as we've said, like there are differences between those different schools. There are differences between individuals' developmental pathways from the, like, if you got the opportunity to go to higher education versus not. Hmm. And I guess I'm curious to hear, you know, your experiences with the intergroup dialogue program and other experiences that you've had of what may or may not work well <laughs> when it comes to helping uh, students find some direction. I, I, I'm not sure I want to go as far as a purpose, but like at least starting mm -hmm. to cultivate what it means to find a purpose. Like, are there recommendations that you have for educators or their personal experiences that you want to share on that front that may help our audience to think through what they could be doing? Yeah. Hmm. Well, you just made the stakes a lot higher by... Yeah. Tell <laughs> everybody on this apply. podcast how yeah. to find a purpose. Go. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Um, one thing that comes to mind when I hear your question, and I think this was a thing that occupied me when I was doing research on purpose. I think it's a thing that occupies me now um, and, and relates to the work I do with intergroup dialogue is recognizing the role that social identities might be playing in someone's experience of cultivating a sense of purpose in life. And when I say social identities, I mean things like gender, sexual orientation, race, socioeconomic status, these social groups we belong to that connect us to broader systems of power, privilege, and oppression. And part of why I think this merits serious consideration 
is because a lot of people find meaning and value in being part of these groups. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody's experience is shaped by their belonging uh, or membership in these different groups. And I think when we fail to take that into consideration, when either supporting someone who's trying to cultivate a purpose or when we're thinking about our own you know, sense of meaning and identity and direction, we're missing a big puzzle piece, I think. And, and like a, a very concrete example that I can give is when I was a child, I wanted to be the president of the United States. <laughs> um, I no longer want that. It now seems like far too much responsibility. But <laughs> when I was a kid, I wanted to do this. And I remember my my aunt and all her friends being very excited. I would vote for you. You'd be a great first woman president of the United States. And, you know, when I think about that example, so let's say my purpose in life was to play a prominent role in shaping policy in the United States. And one part of that was being president, if that was something I wanted. I think about my experience as someone who was born a girl, raised a girl, identifies as a woman. Every president in the United States has been a man. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when it comes to does that purpose seem relevant, does it seem plausible, I think my gender is playing a role in, in my answers to those questions. Maybe it seems out of reach. Maybe it seems unlikely. Will people support me in this or will it be a perpetual uphill battle, right? Would this be a purpose that I'm spending a lot of energy trying to prove that I can do? Or can I really focus on what would it mean to be the president, right? What would be my platform? How would I, you know, engage different constituencies? What would the actual content be, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say I was the president. There's stereotypes that women are too emotional, right? Would I have to pretend or, you know, perform being very like tough on crime, for example, so people take me seriously, you know, things like that. Like, I think my social identity as a woman would really shape my experience of pursuing that purpose. And so I think as researchers, or again, as people supporting someone who's pursuing or trying to figure out what purpose they want to pursue, recognizing the messages that they're getting from the world around them about what might be appropriate for them or what they might be good at um, Mm. or what the world is ready for, right? These are things I think about when I imagine supporting people and pursuing their purpose, especially people in young adulthood for whom identity is often so salient, um, right? Really trying to figure out who they are. And often that means figuring out how my personal identity, so the things that are important to me as an individual, like my enthusiasm for manatees, like being a feminist, (laughs) like being a daughter, how these things about me as an individual also connect to my experience as a woman, as an American, as a straight person, things like that. That's such a great point. And, And as you said, really speaks to why we often talk about this period of development as critical, like the term critical period uh, gets thrown mm. around too frequently, but given it, it is such a wellspring of opportunities for understanding who you are and trying to commit to which identity, like which identities you hold and which ones mm. you value more or less, it really is a critical period for thinking about your purpose. And and also, I totally agree with the, the manatee piece. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. As a total aside, my sister growing up was actually really interested in being a marine biologist. And as part of what we did, and this is like the nerdiest way we could have played as kids, she would teach me about manatees. So somewhere wow. in my parents' basement, I have a degree in manatees from oh my, my sister. So yeah, I don't That's want to brag, amazing. Rachel, but I kind of maybe one up on you from, uh, I don't well, think you got a degree in manatees, but- no, but can you connect me with your sister so that I can pursue her? Um, yes, yes, well, definitely. Program in manatees. We shouldn't have had Tony, and you probably shouldn't have had me on this podcast. We'll just have you talk to my sister instead. Of <laughs> that'd be the best podcast. Um, <laughs> but g- getting back to what you're saying, it's really intriguing how that adds another layer. We were joking earlier about you know, me trying to get you to say like, here's how you find a purpose. Um, but it it adds so many layers when you consider all of this is so individualized that it's difficult to even come up with recommendations at times for, okay, this is the way to explore a purpose, or this is how, you know, everybody should cultivate a purpose when each of those pathways are going to be dictated by your background, your identities, and how you pursue those pathways, the opportunities that you kind of 
have available to you for pursuing and exploring are going to be dependent on your social ecological context as well as your identity background. And like, this is one of the reasons I'm so excited for you to be on is to talk a bit about what you do in this intergroup dialogue program and how getting individuals to maybe talk about these topics may be a critical opportunity for starting to think about directions Mm -hmm. and starting, as you said earlier, if part of purpose is identity, which I, I really like your definition there, how do you try to cultivate these discussions in your group and what kinds of opportunities have you seen to be fruitful in that capacity that you hold? Yeah. So intergroup dialogue looks, I think, different everywhere it's practiced. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's practiced at colleges and universities across the country. So I will speak um, about sort of how we do it at Cornell. We really focus on four broad areas. So the first being human connection. How can people connect with themselves in a meaningful way and with others in a way that is authentic and genuine? There are myriad aspects of modern society that can make that complicated or difficult. These could be things like stereotypes. They could be things like a pandemic, Um, (laughs) all kinds of reasons that people might find that to be difficult. The second broad area we focus on is social identity. So again, how is our membership in these different groups impacting my lived experience as an individual, my interpersonal interactions, my broader my experience of broader social systems related to privilege, marginalization, things like that. And how is that intersectional, right? So as a white woman, I can experience sexism, but not in a way that's inflected by racism. What does that mean? The third broad area is intergroup communication. So we really focus on, unsurprisingly, given the name, dialogue, (laughs) which is an approach to communication that is really geared towards understanding. So it's not debate. I'm not trying to prove you wrong. I'm not trying to win. It's not discussion. I'm not really only engaging in the realm of of facts and trying to problem solve. Dialogue really aims to help people speak from their own experience, listen to others with empathy and curiosity, and do so in a way that leaves everyone learning more than what they knew when they came in. And the fourth broad area is strategic change. So how am I connected to these broader societal systems? How do these patterns that show up in my own life maybe also show up in yours? Or how are they different, right? Because we belong to different groups. And what can we do to try and dismantle hierarchies that are grounded in social identity? So things like transphobia, racism, misogyny. Those are the four broad areas We hope that people come in, regardless of where they are, Pat, I think you said, oh, how does this help people start to think about direction? I think for some participants, that is absolutely true. This can be kind of a waking up moment. I think for others, it comes at a point where they've already thought, right? They already know some of these inequities are troubling to them or things that they want to be working on. And we maybe give them some more skills to help Mm -hmm. in that work or connect them to other people who also really care about this. So the way that this usually works is there's either a semester-long course or a multi-session kind of program that people sign up for where they are being given the opportunity to reflect on these things, to engage with others using these dialogic skills, bringing in material from their own lived experience, also usually engaging with material from theory or scholars, other thinkers, to try and ask some of these big and important questions about who we are how as active participants in a society, we can play a role in shaping how society works. And I just want to call out that all of this is predicated on the assumption that people can change, right? People can become more aware, more empathetic, more capable of recognizing inequities and taking actions to address them. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, for some people, again, this can be a catalyst for thinking about things in a new way. Maybe helping them feel empowered to take on some of these things that do seem so entrenched, right? You can't look at the history of the United States without seeing racism throughout, right? Oh, no. How am I as an individual going to do anything about that? So maybe helping people feel more equipped to take whatever actions they can to minimize the existence of racism in the world or eliminate it, ideally, or connecting them to other people who care about these things. Or even for some people, it's what they walk away with is just a greater understanding of themselves, right? Oh, I didn't understand how much my life was shaped by cisgender privilege. Now I can see how this is sort of working. Yeah. Like it's something we talk about a lot here in terms of we've been working 
on several projects around this idea of kind of an activist purpose or purpose involving mm. activism, you hit on a few really key points of how these experiences, either personal experiences of discrimination, personal experiences with respect to family members, or perceiving experiences in one's broader community, like how do those play a role in catalyzing someone towards this purpose that is, in a lot of ways, as you know, very difficult. Yes, <laughs> like it, it's yes. not something like, okay, how how am I going to dismantle this entire oppressive system, the systemic system, and and trying to get people around those goals can prove really challenging because there isn't a lot of opportunities at times to see like the small steps of progress along the way, as you might see in in other purposes or directions for life that you can see the incremental progress. Um, and I'm really like interested to hear what you found, like what kinds of experiences seem to be those that your participants may capitalize on in terms of becoming more aware or, you know, perhaps starting to see the need for, for change and societal change. Like, it takes so many like scaffolds along the way. <laughs> it, it takes so much, so much support to get individuals to that point. Are there things that you have found in your work that may be like common themes or common perceptions, common events that lead people to recognize the importance of like having that kind of a direction for life? Or is it really? so individualized that it's difficult to really come up with commonalities. Yeah. I don't know if this is answering your question, but I what... I, I, I don't know what would answer my question. <laughs> <laughs> so what comes to mind when I hear that question is I think part of the power of intergroup dialogue is that it can make painful individual experiences feel less lonely. Mm, okay. So experiences of marginalization that have happened to me or that I've seen in my community, sometimes I might think I'm the only one who's experienced those things yeah. or I feel shame to talk about them or, you know, there's, there's all kinds of reasons that that can be lonely. Mm -hmm. And I think in an intergroup dialogue space, there's often through a process, right? This doesn't happen right away, but there's often a space created where people can be vulnerable and candid mm -hmm. and acknowledge assumptions that they've had about their own groups or other groups and, and do some of that learning work together in a way that helps me see I'm not alone. Okay. And so I think that sort of points to not only the scale of the problem, oh, this isn't just a thing that's impacted me and my family. This is a thing right. that is impacting low SES people everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it also means I'm not the only one who can solve this, right? That there might be possibility in coalition building. And so I think given its focus on individual, interpersonal, and structural levels, it can be kind of overwhelming. You can see how ableism shows up in all those different levels. But I think that also many participants leave feeling a greater sense of reality, right? That was all, ableism was always operating at all those levels. I just didn't necessarily realize it. And now that I realize it, what am I going to do? And I think where I see purpose kind of intersecting with that is instead of being daunted by the scale of the problem... Mm -hmm. I think running towards that problem, uh, <laughs> knowing that I might never see it actually resolved in my lifetime, and that doesn't mean I can't have an impact that's meaningful. Yeah. My dog is echoing, but <laughs> this is important. Always happy to have extra animal guests on the show. So yeah, yeah, she just wants to be heard, and I really yeah. I appreciate I, I, I appreciate that. that. Yeah. So I've heard you and Tony in prior episodes talk about is purpose fun, <laughs> um, and, <laughs> or is it you know what is nice about it? And I think people who decide to devote their lives, who who orient their direction towards eliminating something like xenophobia, that's not easy. That's mm. not necessarily fun. It does require a long-term commitment, right? And sort of maybe knowing that you might not see this addressed in your lifetime. And I think that reflects a real understanding of the scale of the issue. I think it's a little bit naive to assume that such entrenched hierarchies related to social identities could be eliminated in one lifetime. <laughs> and so recognizing that I'm going to play one part in this. And I think it also helps people feel connected to those who have been working on these issues before them and those who may come after them, 
so seeing themselves connected to others through time as people who really care about creating justice in that particular realm. And it also makes me think this sort of false dichotomy between purpose or working on these painful issues and like hope. And so I'm thinking in particular of Jeffrey Duncan Andrade has an essay called Note to Educators, Hope Required When Growing Roses in Concrete. Have you read this? No, I haven't. Okay, great. Um, I would recommend. uh, And (laughs) one thing that he says, he's talking about audacious hope. And he says, it stares Mm. down the painful path. And despite the overwhelming odds against us making it down that path to change, we make the journey again and again. There is no Mm. other choice. Mm -hmm. Acceptance of this fact allows us to find the courage and commitment to cajole our students to join us on this journey. This makes us better people as it makes us better teachers and models for our students that the painful path is the hopeful path. And part of what I love about that is that I think like there is hope in saying this is difficult and I'm going to do it anyway because otherwise xenophobia is going to persist. Misogyny is going to persist. And so it is hopeful for me to recognize that as something that might change and to do what I can to be part of that change. Oh, that's beautiful. And it's interesting how much it connects to like we we just uh, did an episode in which we were talking with an expert on optimism. I just listened to that today. Yeah. yeah. Li- li- like he and I have talked a few times about the distinction between optimism and hope that mm-hmm. like those two constructs get so connected yeah. in the literature uh, to the point that like when I teach my positive psych class, we just do them together in one week. Mm-hmm. And what you just spoke to is in a lot of ways, the distinction there, like mm-hmm. whether like the, having this kind of audacious idea of hope, like, and not just being like, blindly optimistic towards mm-hmm. how this is going to change or blindly optimistic, like things are going to get better. And like yeah. having this hope seems so much more connected to purpose and direction for me than necessarily optimism does. Yeah. And another thing that you raised, which is really intriguing is going back to kind of discussions around what isn't purpose. There's a number of scholars who have put forward this idea of trying to draw distinctions between like purpose and meaning and Mm. mattering at times. Mm. And I think what you're speaking to with some of this is that perception of mattering, that perception that what you are doing now Mm. is mattering because it either influences or helps those in the future, Mm. as well as it matters in terms of following along the line from the past. Like you put it way better than I just did, but thinking about this as a continuity of progress is such a great way of putting it. Like I often use this example of when I was in, in high school, I used to work at a paper supply company, which I don't think sponsors the podcast. We won't name them by name, but (laughs) I always would come out of that daily of work thinking like I've accomplished something because the paper aisle would be beautiful and impeccable. Mm -hmm. I brought down all the paper and all the reams. And it's Mm -hmm. something that I haven't really experienced much since that time because Mm -hmm. it it is such a unique, like really when you think about it, for most of the things that we try to do in life, it can be tricky to find that day-to-day progress report (laughs) or that like Mm -hmm. I accomplished this today And here is what I did towards my goals for life or towards my direction for life. And as you speak to all of this, it's particularly profound and particularly noteworthy in some of the goals and directions that we're talking about here and and trying to think about how to make bigger systemic progress. It's even trickier than like if someone's purpose is to succeed at work, you could at least see like, oh, I got a raise or I got a promotion Mm -hmm. and see something along the line. But I like the way you put it of trying to find those things or those opportunities along the way to take stock of how what you're doing matters or how what you're doing connects you to others. And we've spoke a few times on this podcast about the really critical element of social support and social mm. connections more broadly of some of our work showing just on days in which you have positive social connections, you feel more purposeful. And mm. it seems really critical for some of the work you've been doing that 
finding those connections between people yeah. <laughs> matters and finding that that opportunity to talk in a safe space about I've seen this and then have others respond in kind and respond mm. that they are also witnessing these issues and concerns. That's a really interesting point that I, I don't know if I've really thought that much about when it comes to how to use dialogue towards purpose. And mm. I guess when we're thinking about this, another reason why we're really excited to have you join us is that you're going to start actually teaching purpose. Or, I am. Uh, like a class. It's kind of, a class. I'm going to teach yes, a teaching class. Teaching a class on purpose, <laughs> which is particularly like, again, I'm just adding to all these amazing things that you're doing that I would just shy away from of like, oh, that seems really scary. Um, <laughs> but how have you started to tackle this this idea of teaching a class on purpose? And what kinds of things, maybe how have these experiences built into it, as well as how do you think about this from what are the aims of the instruction and what should people be coming out of it with beyond, of course, getting an A on a final about purpose or something but <laughs> like what how do you tackle this kind of a question of teaching teaching a class on purpose yeah i love this phrase teaching a class on purpose because it makes me feel like every other class i've taught has been by accident yes <laughs> um, that's how most of my classes are yeah, actually yeah. Like, so, oh i'm yeah. going to teach this class on purpose this time right. um well <laughs> i think it comes i think you know you said what are students going to walk away with and this relates to what I was thinking as you were talking about impact, right? And, and being able to see. So feeling satisfied when you had moved all that paper and you could really see, you had a tangible impact. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a thing that is both complicated and uplifting about social justice work. And I think also being an educator is how often the impact is unclear, whether because someone takes what they learn in, in our intergroup dialogue course, for example, and it's not until months later when they've been applying these skills for a while that they realize how they've been impacted by the course. And, you know, right. they don't always write back to say like, oh, I realized that this concept we talked about has been fundamental in shaping my understanding of XYZ. But, you know, this is a, I have gotten occasional thank you notes from students and I'm always shocked, right? Like they'll mention these really specific choices or, you know, kind of interactions that had mm -hmm. an impact I find to be very surprising. Mm -hmm. And so anyways, I think this is an interesting point around sustaining one's purpose and kind of how much evidence of impact do you need <laughs> to continue to feel <laughs> motivated? And how much is it just sort of trusting that impact is probably there, even if I don't know it? And as I say that out loud, I hear how dangerous that is because I know how many people are, are well-intentioned and ill-informed, um, and yeah. especially when it comes to, you know, sort of being an ally or, or things like this. And I can see people kind of kind of thinking, well, I'm having a good impact, even if I can't see it, even if no one's thanking me, you know. And so I don't know how to balance that with humility. I just took myself on a fun little tangent. So I will get back to your question about this class that I'm teaching on purpose. So I think that's the new title of our show is a fun little tangent. That would be a fun little tangent. That's a much better name than your direction. We should we should Well, I thought it was gonna be candy and basketball. I thought I mean, we were. it should be candy and basketball, but Candy and a fun basketball. little tangent's actually a better name. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, you could have uh, various podcasts that branch yeah. off of this. Well, one. we'll have multiple. Great. Um, so the the class on purpose. Uh, in part, this is facilitated by the structure. Cornell has a learning where you live program where people can offer courses that take place. They're really designed to help students have a sort of more low stress experience where they get to engage okay. in, in a lot of interesting and important academic work, connect with other people. Some are geared only towards first year students. And so that is what I've chosen for this class. And you mm -hmm. may think, what? Everyone's thinking about the rest of their life when they're graduating. And I'm like, I know. They're already, you know, um, they're already maybe thinking about purpose then. I want to believe and hope that students want to take advantage of the opportunity that is the upheaval of the transition to college. Yeah. <laughs> this is such a, you know, kind of great opportunity to ask new questions about identity and meaning and direction or to revisit. Uh, the answers that I came up with, you know, before I got to college about who I was or what's meaningful to me or where I want to mm -hmm. go. And so this course is going to be offered in the fall. 
it's going to be seven weeks. It's going to be the second half of the fall semester. So students who are in this course will be people who are new to Cornell, who've been on campus for about half a semester. And I am the structure, uh, unsurprisingly, going to focus on identity, meaning, and direction <laughs> um, when it comes Spoiler to alert. kind yeah. of what is purpose. And then we're also going to have some classes focused on processes, right? So exploration and commitment that are often kind of discussed as processes inherent in cultivating a sense of purpose. And I'm going to take some of what we do in the intergroup dialogue work. So we're going to, for example, use some of these dialogue skills. We're going to talk about those, practice those in class and use students' individual experiences, right? So how they currently understand themselves or, you know, their own experiences of meaning and, and direction, how they're thinking about these things, coupled with scholarship, right? So so things that have been written about purpose and things that they kind of get exposed to in, you know, I know you all talked about this in an earlier episode, but how purpose gets used to market things to people. I think this is also true on a college campus, right? Whether it's like career services or, you know, a given college's kind of values or goals that they try and highlight, right? There's a lot of talk about living a purposeful life. So anyways, so we're going to use those dialogic skills, their own experiences, research to just better understand purpose in life and what it might mean for them during their time as college students. I don't know what it's like at the school you teach at, but um, <laughs> Cornell is a pretty competitive environment, um, understandably. <laughs> That's a lot of high achieving people who go there. And so I think that competitive environment college is very expensive, right? I understand that there can be a lot of pressure to have things figured out or to act like you have things figured out when you're in college. And so I'm hoping this class will be a space for people to better understand the value in exploring purpose. As I said earlier, right? I'm a big fan of this fact that like exploration itself has value, even if it doesn't necessarily lead to commitment right away. And I'm hoping that students will leave this class not only with a better understanding of purpose in life and what it might look like for them during their time as college students, but also just maybe making choices throughout the rest of their college career that are more driven internally than Mm -hmm. than kind of what they feel like they should be doing. So yeah, I think it's going to be fun. Yeah, I'll let you know how it goes after I've talked. I was going to say, we'll we'll have you back on the podcast after and talk about but. I've brought this up before, but this past semester was the first time I I had ever taught a positive psych class, which means it's like the first time I really taught purpose, despite mm. working on it for so long. Yeah, And it is kind of an interesting challenge to try to teach something that you're so excited by <laughs> to a group of individuals. And, and I do hope, like you said, uh, they'll get intrigued by it and engaged with it. And it reminds me a lot of when we have new research assistants join the lab here, they often come in feeling pretty sure of themselves. And then Mm -hmm. after reading about purpose for like (laughs) a couple months, all of a sudden they have this kind of existential crisis in a way of like, wait, I have no idea what this is for me. And I, I, I haven't really thought about this until now. And they often, to put the positive spin on this, they often come out of the lab feeling very positive about their experience. Yeah. But I think it is something that there's a pressure both, you know, in a competitive environment, there's a pressure to know what it is that you're like to have this idea that like, I know where I'm going, I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. But there's also something that we've talked about before is this pressure at times from universities in the messaging that's being put out there. Like you noted how universities are really focused on finding purpose, helping, like like telling people this is where you're going to go to to find a purpose. And like we've talked before about the term find a purpose is also putting a lot of onus on you. Like it's, you're the one who has to find it. It's not my job as part of the university experience. And it is tricky to get individuals, to get students at times to kind of admit, like, I'm not exactly sure what I'm up to. And that's, in some ways, the first step of the 10-step program of purpose, of Mm -hmm. admitting that you need, like, need help with a purpose. And I love that idea of, like, that could be part of the exploration piece is helping individuals to see, like, they need, need to know where they're, like, that they don't know where they're going, I guess, at times. And we're admitting to it. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of want to normalize that uncertainty because again, I do think there are a lot of messages that I've certainly received about 
how valuable it is, how easy it is, how possible it is to, to right. have clarity about your direction. Mm-hmm. And so I want to kind of normalize, like not everybody does. Um, not everybody, no. <laughs> and that's totally fine. And I think another thing I feel really excited about with this course is the integration of like individual lived experiences with research. Mm-hmm. This is part of what really energized me when I first was exposed to intergroup dialogue. And I think it was a thing that frustrated me when I was more exclusively in like the research realm, this kind of performance of objectivity that scientists are expected to, <laughs> to have, at least in, in the field of developmental psychology, you know, not using I in, in writing papers, right? It's not sort of like, I was drawn to this because of blah, blah, blah. And I remember feeling particularly irritated about that when it came to some work on purpose and socioeconomic status. I remember feeling like reading some paper and they had studied, you know, I think it was adolescence at a high resource school or, you know, like a private school. Mm-hmm. And there was sort of speculation in the discussion about, well, lower income students who don't have access to these opportunities probably have a harder time cultivating purpose. And I was like, how dare you? <laughs> you didn't look, right? And you didn't so look, this, yeah. this assumption of a deficit because these students have you know, less access to economic resources was really frustrating to me. Mm -hmm. And this was absolutely kind of motivating much of my own research was my own lived experience. And so I want, I hope that students in this class that I'm teaching on purpose can also do some of that work of like seeing themselves in research and seeing research in their own lives. I think breaking down that idea that like science is objective and somehow separate from people uh, is a thing I would be excited about. And you know, as I said, right, Pat, I've worked with you for a long time. And I kind of don't know what it is, if at all, about your own life that has led you to study the things you study. I don't want to put you on the spot. But (laughs) is there? Yeah. How much do you feel like your own lived experiences have informed the kind of research you do? It's interesting. I get some of this, like not put as eloquently, it's usually like, how did you ever get here? Um, (laughs) (laughs) So you you put it way better than you. uh, I usually get the question. And and I, I think you're right that it's a, there are so many parts of how I grew up, like without as many resources as others, and we'd be very grateful for, you know, I talk a lot about getting to go to like McDonald's or something. It wasn't mm. like an event. Like mm-hmm. that was something exciting for us as children growing up and recognizing that and being grateful for those things and those opportunities, I think, has led a lot of my experience of like being able to do what I do now, getting to s- sit here and talk, like how much of a, more of an opportunity or do I get than getting to sit around talking with you and getting to talk with people that I really excited to, to chat with. Like it's something that you don't take for granted. I think that part of my lived experience has been really focused on that, that piece of being grateful for the mm. opportunities when they pop up and be like, as much as we were joking about him before, uh, we often, like, I often say that the reason I do what I do is in large part because I got to work with Tony and met Tony back in graduate school Mm. and would probably not be here today if it weren't for him, but uh, don't let him hear it. Like, I don't think he listens to our podcast, so don't let him hear any of that. That it really is being able, I think a lot of my experiences of being able to recognize when something was just so serendipitous and be grateful Mm -hmm. for those things, because as we've kind of alluded to, so much of it is not within your control at times um, Mm. for multiple reasons that you being able to work and talk with people, being able to do the things that give you interest is not something that is going to be easy to find. So being able to capitalize upon those lived experiences of really who I've met along the way and getting to talk with the people who I want to talk with, (laughs) I I guess, is a lot of it for me. Um, And it also really led to some interesting aspects of what I used to work in Canada, like Canada, working at a university in Ottawa, Canada, led to a very different perspective on identities Mm. and who I was. Like I kind of had a new identity Mm. crisis in a way at times of, for the first time in my life, thinking about myself, like I'm the American. like I And I had never really thought about that and often led to these interesting, difficult experiences of like, okay, defend the country. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was like, oh, 
okay, I never thought I'd be in this role of being the one person to to defend the entire country. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, as an American, I hope you did a good job defending I, I hope I did too. I, I, I don't remember. <laughs> okay. I don't remember what I said, but yeah, uh, yeah. Like those kinds of things where it's both getting to meet new people. And I think those times in which I have moved and, you know, transitioning from Canada to here in St. Louis leads to a different identity experience and a different understanding of perspectives and opportunities to work with people who I didn't get to meet or didn't get to work with growing Mm -hmm. up in a very rural part of Indiana, in kind of a lower socioeconomics area, very white area of Indiana. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a very different lived experience that I've had over my last two jobs um, in both Ottawa and here. So it has led in, I hope, good ways of shaping Mm -hmm. what questions I now ask in terms of purpose rather than, you know, some of the more foundational work about purpose and well-being, purpose and health that we did earlier on. And that's why I like asking the question about what is purpose to you? Because I Mm -hmm. like even starting there has been something that I noticed talking with individuals in other cultural contexts. Like we have to start with that question (laughs) before we go on. So sorry, I'm Again, ramble. What was our title earlier? A nice tangent or something? Oh, a fun <laughs> tangent. No, I yes, appreciate. Fun, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I appreciate the different aspects of lived experience that you brought into that answer, and I appreciate. You know, I, again, I've known you for a long time, and I didn't know all of those things about you, and so I'm grateful for the chance to better understand how this fits into the arc of your life. And you know, you mentioned both serendipity and Tony, and I feel remiss that I didn't answer my initial question about how I ended up here by talking about the important role that Tony has played. Oh, no, 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 um, no, we don't have to go into that. I, uh, I you think we're running me- low on time, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> you told me his dad listens to this podcast, so I that's right. He, 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 <laughs> yeah. some of the impact. But I think it's it's funny that you mentioned you know serendipity and sort of being open to things as they come because I did not go to graduate school thinking I wanted to study purpose. Mm-hmm. In fact, Tony wasn't even at Cornell when I started there. But when I met him, I was kind of on the lookout for a graduate advisor who would be supportive and, you know, help me develop research skills and engage questions that were really interesting and important to me. And so that's how I ended up studying purpose is because I want to work with Tony. And so, you know, purpose was also interesting enough. If he had studied like genetics and mice, I probably probably would have been a bridge <laughs> too far. But um, fortunately, he all, all apologies to our so. geneticist <laughs> listeners in the group. Yeah. You know, it's important work. And what I'll say is that it's not for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Are there any other questions or things that have come up? Like from, you've been tackling this from such a different perspective of getting, like, I, I'm so jealous at times mm-hmm. of like, you, you you get to work with people, <laughs> like mm-hmm. real people. Are there any other questions or things that came up for you? in trying to apply purpose to your contexts and your groups? What an important question. Um, other things that have come up? No. I think no. <laughs> I think one question I do have, because you've alluded to this fact that mm-hmm. after graduate school, I did run in a very applied direction. I kind of, I don't really think of myself as someone who does research. That's definitely part of my current job, but it's right. not at the center of my current job. Mm-hmm. And I let's see, finished graduate school, oh Lord, seven years ago. And I feel (laughs) kind of out of the loop on purpose research. And I understand that some of these questions that I feel like I kind of lobbed into the field with some of my last papers, (laughs) um, I think there's been some movement on some of those. And so I think my question for you would be, what do you think I've missed (laughs) in the purpose literature in the last few years that feels energizing to you. Like what's been going on? What's been fun? That's a good (laughs) question. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, Yeah. I would say that, you know, one of the things that really has been energizing to me has been more work on what this actually means in Mm. one's day-to-day life. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. so much of my initial work was kind of like, okay, we assess people at this time point. And Mm. then we give them a bunch of health measures and uh, we see a correlation, but it doesn't tell us much about like, okay, like you alluded to earlier, are purposeful people having fun? Are purposeful Mm -hmm. people stressed? Are purposeful people experiencing different types of events in their daily life from people who might feel less purposeful? So I think that's one area that has been really 
like taking off recently in terms of doing more daily work, doing more like momentary assessment work. And hopefully, like as a result of the pandemic, you know, one of the like I always hate to use the term silver lining, but mm-hmm. one of the things that this has made a lot of people aware of is of course all of the inequities in the system mm-hmm. that were there for decades and people just yeah. weren't realizing it. And I think as a result, the pandemic may be reshaping individuals' mm-hmm. directions. And, and I think that's something going forward to to start to understand how people used this time, mm-hmm. you know, when they were taken away from their usual environments, their usual opportunities, how are they using this time to rethink what they want to do and to recognize things that they may not have noticed? Mm-hmm. In, or may have been blind to earlier in the pre-pandemic time. And and we see this a lot in kind of anecdotal news stories regarding like somebody who now has changed their path and is no longer working for this company, now working for a nonprofit or something focused on societal change. And, And I think this could be a really interesting opportunity where a lot of people were forced to mm. think because <laughs> they they were stuck in their indoors and stuck thinking <laughs> about what did they miss yeah. from their previous pre-pandemic lives and in that way recognizing what mattered to them. So yeah. it could be like going back to your theme here, it could have been an opportunity for a lot of people to explore new directions mm. and to explore what really is essential to them. And And hopefully that could be one of the you know, silver linings or such that comes out of this really difficult and traumatic time for so many people is rethinking whether they want to return to that direction that they had before 2020. Yeah. 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 And a societal rethinking, right? I think part of what you mentioned is that this happened to pretty much everyone. And there are so Mm -hmm. few, I think, purpose-related catalysts that everyone experiences simultaneously. Um, And so I think, yeah, the pandemic is, is interesting in that regard. Yeah. So hmm. we'll see what happens, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess with that, I could keep talking to you forever, but I probably should let you go back to doing all this interesting and valuable work rather right. than talking to me. And, and I'll keep you in touch with Manatee School so we can make sure that you get your degree there. But thank you so much for joining today, Rachel. I, I really enjoyed this. It was such a fun time talking with you. And to all of our listeners out there, this is another opportunity for you to get to hear people other than me and Tony talking. (laughs) So we hope you appreciate that. And we hope that you'll return for another episode of Your Direction. So thank you all.